0: Morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 62. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles just outside the door on the tables out there. And uh, certainly, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to take one of those and take it home with you. Uh, Write your name in the front. uh, Take it, read it, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Psalm 62, let's pray. Our Father, we come to hear from you, we come to wait on you, we come to receive from you. We come because we are needy, we come because we are broken, we come because we are sinful, we come because uh, we are in need of forgiveness and grace and mercy and help and hope. We pray that as we look to your word, that you would supply what we need. So, Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand and believe your word this morning, and most of all, to rest in our Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge, is God. Trust in Him at all times, O peoples. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath, Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render a man according to his work. The waiting is the hardest part. Now, I doubt that Tom Petty was the first person to say that. You see, it's a bit of a universal human experience, waiting. I'm pretty sure we wait less than anyone in human history in our Insta-Everything culture, though. I thought about this the other day when I got stuck in traffic, you know, uh, Champagne, Illinois-style traffic. Now, I used to wait for hours in Philly traffic, and it was just a normal part of life, but now I call 10 cars in front of me traffic, and I do my best to avoid it. I don't wanna wait. I I don't wanna wait for my turn. I don't wanna wait for vacation. I don't wanna wait on people. I don't wanna wait on traffic lights. I don't wanna wait at doctor's offices. I don't wanna wait in line. I do think we wait less than anyone in human history. But at the same time, I think we are always waiting today, right? Never living in the moment, never just enjoying where we are. Always waiting, always wishing we were somewhere else, doing something else with somebody else. Never content to sit and to live in the waiting We spend most of our lives waiting, right? Waiting to grow up, waiting till I'm old enough, waiting to get my driver's license, waiting to go to college, waiting to get married, waiting to have kids, waiting to get a promotion, waiting for the weekend, waiting to go on vacation, waiting to retire. Waiting is the hardest part, whether waiting for something bad or something good, right? Because when we anticipate bad things, the anticipation is what kills us. We can't wait to get it over with. But when we anticipate something good, we can't wait for it to happen. There are some in our family who hate surprises when they know they're coming. The anticipation is what kills us. Have you ever heard someone say that they like to wait? Right, that they can't wait to wait? No, because no one has ever said that. It just doesn't happen. Well, we're going to discuss waiting this morning, and we're going to look at four questions. You can find them uh, in your bulletin on the back. Uh, Four questions. When do you wait? Why do you wait? On whom do you wait? And how do you wait? We're going to talk about waiting through and waiting for and waiting on and waiting in. First, when do you wait? Waiting through. Psalm 62 begins, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Now we'll come back to this phrase again and again, but for now I need to say uh, waiting, waiting is a condition of the soul, I say this because I don't think when the psalmist talks about waiting, he simply means I am presently in situation A, and in the future I will be in situation B. Right? Waiting is not a given; it's a condition of the soul. Waiting means I am presently in situation A, and I'm anticipating a future in situation B. Right? Like I, I, I presently have no ice cream, but you have promised me ice cream, and now I am anticipating ice cream. That's waiting. I'm waiting. What that that means is that waiting is always, it's a waiting through, right? Things are not now what I anticipate they will be. I am waiting through a period of unfulfilled promises or unmet expectations or unrealized dreams. Or at its more extreme, I am waiting through a period of suffering. We wait through suffering. David was waiting through suffering. Look at verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now, we have heard a lot about David's trouble as we have looked at various Psalms. But David only touches on his troubles here. It's very brief. First, David's enemies, he says, are, are cruel. Right? They, they see a man who is vulnerable, a, a leaning wall, a tottering fence, someone who is ready to fall over at any moment, and they take advantage of him. They attack him to knock him down. They are bullies who take advantage of the weak for their own gain, whether money or power or status or whatever it is, or whether they simply knock others down to prop up their own fragile egos. Second, David's enemies are opportunists. Right? They're power-hungry. They're seeking positions of influence and authority. He says in verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. And remember, David is king. He is in a high position. And surely he had many enemies, many rivals, many people who wish they had his throne, his title, his money, his influence. And so he says, they're, they're looking to tear me down. Finally, David's enemies are two-faced. We saw this in Psalm 55 as well. Verse 4 says, They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. See, these, these are people you can't trust. They say one thing outwardly in public, in the open, but in private, behind closed doors, when no one else is in earshot, they curse. They tear you down. They tell you they love you to your face, and then they go and talk you down plotting your demise. David had enemies. We have enemies. We talked about that a bit last week. In fact, uh, when Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, it, of course, assumes that we have them. And yet, even if our suffering is is not from human opposition, like David's, that doesn't mean there's no suffering. It doesn't mean you're not asking with David in verse 4, how long? How long will this go on? Or with Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Where are you suffering? Where are you waiting through? To what do you say, I wish this would end now? In fact, I wish this would have ended yesterday. I'm ready for this to be done. I'm ready for this to be over. What trials do you face? What troubles? What difficulties? Of course, if there were no trials, there would be no waiting in the Christian life, but there are trials, and so we wait. Are you willing to wait through those trials? Don't answer that yet. Let's keep going. Uh, Now, we should say, uh, before we move on, that the Bible commends us to wait through trials, but it does not commend us to wait for them. Waiting for trials is what we call worry. (laughs) Worry is the anticipation of harm, right? Waiting through trials is not the anticipation of harm. It is the bearing up under it in the moment. We wait because we experience trouble presently. We are not to anticipate trouble, but to bear whatever trouble we have in the moment today. So we don't wait for trials. We wait for resolve. We wait for the end. We wait for salvation. But of course, that brings us to the next point. So when do you wait? You wait through trials. You you wait when you suffer. You wait when you are unfulfilled. But we wait for it to end. So a little more briefly, point two, why do you wait? Waiting for. If troubles were the only reality, we would not wait we would despair. If I am waiting through a period of expectation and longing and hope, that means I'm not only waiting through, but I'm also waiting for. I'm waiting for trials to end. I'm waiting for hope to become a reality. I'm waiting for promises to be fulfilled. We wait because things are not now what we hope they will be, and because we hope they will be different. We can envision and anticipate the future, a future not like the present. David says in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. The word salvation there means deliverance, or freedom, or sufficiency, or safety, especially deliverance from enemies. David longs for deliverance from his enemies. David says in verse seven, "O oh God, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My right, mighty rock, my refuge is God. See, David's safety and his reputation, his glory, his honor, those are in God's hands. Someone is trying to tear him down. He hopes to come out unscathed. He hopes in his enemy's defeat. He hopes to still be king at the end of it all. He hopes that when the dust settles, he will still be standing, as it were. And so he waits. He is presently being attacked, slandered, plotted against, but he hopes. And so he waits. Do you wait? Do you long? Do you wish things were different? Do you hope for things to be other than what they are? Can you imagine a future not like the present? What is the trial that you are facing and how do you wish that it were different? If you could wave a magic wand and make your troubles go away, what would life look like for you? If you can imagine that, you can begin to understand what it means to wait for. And yet it's more than that because waiting for and waiting on, our third point, go hand in hand. Right? There are vain hopes according to scripture. Sometimes people hope for things that never come. Uh, Sometimes people have empty dreams. We wait not simply because we think things might be different at some point, right? We're not just waiting it out without knowing what tomorrow will bring. We're not just waiting for a brighter day, right? We're also waiting on. Which brings us to the next point, right? So when do you wait? We wait through trials, Why do you wait? You wait for good things to come. Three, on whom do you wait? Waiting on. On whom do you wait? When troubles come, where do you look for a solution? In what do you trust? From where does our help come? If you're like me, you look to effort. If I only try hard enough, I can fix this. If I only do a little more, everything will turn out. I can make it right. I have a good friend who, uh, whenever anything goes wrong in his family medically, uh, he learns everything there is to know about that thing, and I mean everything. I mean, he reads websites and journal articles. He learns all the terminology, the possible treatments, the likely prognosis. Now, that could be fine, but it could be an expression of self-reliance. It could be an expression of, I don't like what's happening, and so I'll seek to control through knowledge and learning. I can make it through this, if only I learn enough to fix the problem. Or maybe you just begin to grumble, Grumbling is an attempt to control, believe it or not. It's this idea, I can't do anything, but I can complain about it. And that makes me feel like I'm doing something and so it makes me feel better. Or maybe you turn to other people. Uh, you know, quick question: when something goes wrong in your life, who's on speed dial? Who do you turn to first? Do you turn to a trusted friend to, to make things right? Do you call your mom or your dad so they can fix the problem? Do you call your connections in high places, whoever they may be? Do you call your senator? Nobody calls her senator anymore, right? <laughs> Where do you turn? To whom do you look? In whom do you trust? Or do you despair? Do you not hope at all? Not wait on anything in the midst of your troubles? The majority of this psalm is actually focused on this question on whom do you wait? And David doesn't take long to tell us, does he? Again, verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. But he repeats it again and again throughout the psalm. So verses 1 and 2, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Now notice a couple things. Uh, One, David exhorts in verse 8, Trust Him at all times. Why is that? Well, because there are many times, well, there are times when it's easy to trust him, when things are going well, but there are also many times when it's really hard, when we are waiting through and waiting for, when troubles and trials and unmet expectations and unfulfilled promises seem to be our lot. Then it's hard. And so David says, trust him at all times, not just when it's easy, not just in the good, But I also want you to notice the the pronouns. God is my rock, my salvation, my fortress, my glory, my refuge. God is a refuge for us, he says. For us. And yet not for everyone. Well, why not? Well, because not everyone waits on God. Look at verses 9 and 10. David says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. David trusts in God, but what's the alternative? Trusting in man. And so David instructs. He says, look, those of low estate are but a breath. Don't trust them. That is, a man is a momentary vapor, here one moment and dissipating the next. Human beings are like the morning mist or like the fog on your mirror after a hot shower. It's there, but not for long. But it's not just those of low estate. I mean, who's tempted to trust in them anyway? But what about the rich? Those of high estate. They, David says, are a delusion, See, we're tempted to trust in those of high estate, the learned, the wealthy, the powerful. They at least have some substance, some pull, some sway in the real world. But they don't, says David. It's a delusion. It's a lie. It's a falsehood. They look solid, but it's not real. They have no substance, no weight. In the grand scheme of things, he says, not even the wealthy and the powerful can control the future. Why do you put your trust in them? In the balances, they go up. They are together, low and high combined, lighter than a breath. How heavy is a breath? How much does it weigh in the scales? That's how much control we have over the future. Interestingly, David turns in verse 10 to say, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. Now, these would be the things that his enemies do. These would be the things that the enemies of God's people do. So why would David have to warn against these? Well, what happens when you see people sin and succeed? You know, you see a student cheat and get A's on a tough exam that you studied hours for. Or you see a coworker steal from the boss and get away with it. Or you see a neighbor cheat on his taxes and get a big return. What does that do in your heart? Well, it tempts you. It tempts you to do the same. Well, if they got away with it, maybe I can do. If the wicked prosper, maybe I'm playing for the wrong team. So David warns of the vanity and deception of man. And then he says specifically, don't do what they do. Don't go there. Don't even think about it. Oh, and by the way, right, it's not just extortion and robbery that are vain hopes. It's riches as well, he says. Don't set your heart on them. They're not wrong in themselves, but neither are they solid. (coughs) They are a breath, they are a delusion, they cannot save you. But, we protest, right? Look, it seems to be working. Look around you. But no, David says. as the Psalms say elsewhere, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, right? It's not simply about human exertion or human power or, or money or whatever it happens to be. It's about God's blessing. It's about God's power. God says in Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Whatever you might be going through, right, God can see you through it. And God alone can see you through it. David says, For God alone my soul waits, verse 1. He only is my rock, verse 2. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, verse 5. He only is my rock and salvation, verse 6. It's not God plus. You know, Jonathan uh, in uh, 1 Samuel once said, Come, let us go over to our enemies. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You see what he's saying? He's saying God doesn't need a great army to win a battle. And God doesn't need a lot of money to care for you. And God doesn't need a a political power to care for you. He doesn't need to cheat or steal or lie to care for you. God doesn't need. It's not God plus. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. Now we have to add what David assumes here, right? That this God has promised to us salvation. Uh, We're not just waiting for some nebulous good to come from some generic God. Our God has made promises, promises to care for us, promises to protect us, promises to provide for us. Jesus himself says, says, don't be anxious. Your father knows what you need. Seek him and he will provide for you. Matthew 10, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Or Isaiah 43, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So when do you wait? You wait through trials. Why do you wait? You wait for good things to come. But on whom do you wait? You wait on God. We wait on the Lord. Which brings us to the last question. How do you wait? Waiting in. What does it look like to wait? What does it look like to wait through trouble and for good and on God? How do we do it? Well, first, we wait in silence. Wait in silence in uh, the first verse is actually one word in Hebrew. Uh, There there are different kinds of of stillness and different kinds of silence, different kinds of waiting. Not all of them are good, actually. A very similar word in Hebrew is used to refer to the still silence of death. What does David mean here? He means a patient waiting on God to act. Not the uncertain hush of someone waiting to see how everything is going to turn out, just wondering, but the confident quiet of one who knows that God is going to save even if he doesn't know all the details, even if we, don't, even if we haven't uh, figured it all out. See, the contrast is not only with the, the, the grumbler, but also with the babbler, right, who, who because of nerves can't stop talking, as well as the, the manipulator who hopes that by his many words he will persuade God or man to his side and change the situation. And so we have here not the noise of anxiety or the noise of manipulation or even the quiet stillness of being scared stiff, right, but the quietness of confident hope in God. And normally, of course, Hebrew piety was actually not quiet. Normally it was loud. It was full of prayers and praises and songs and shouts and crying out and calling out. But here, for once, it's quiet, trusting, waiting. So, first, we wait in silent trust, knowing that our God has this, knowing that He will work everything out. And second, we wait in prayer. Verse 8 reads, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. Apparently, even silence does not exclude a little bit of noise. So the psalmist exhorts the people, the nations, to pray, to pour out their hearts. Tell him your fears, tell him your anxieties, tell him your worries, tell of your troubles and trials and enemies. See, part of our waiting is casting our burden on the Lord. And so first we wait in silence, and second we wait in prayer. The third, we wait in faith. Right? Why, why place such trust in God? I want what I want, right? And I want it now. I, I want immediate instant gratification. I want safety and security and resolve. If God doesn't give me what I want, when I want it, why should I trust Him? Why should I wait? Well, verses 11 and 12 says, "Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this." that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man according to his work. First, David gives us three reasons there. God has power. God has mercy. God will give to each according to our work. God has power. Unlike man, the breath, the delusion, God has real power, real strength. God has steadfast love and grace and mercy, right? He will not go back on His promises. He's proven that again and again and again as we read through Scripture. God will give to each according to His work. It seems kind of an odd place to end the psalm. Uh, It seems out of place a bit, but the point, I think, is this. If you wait on Him, He will save you. He will care for you. He will protect you. If you trust in riches, He will leave you to your riches, If you trust in man, he will leave you to others to to pick you up. But if you trust in him and wait on him, he will save you. Now, even the psalmist was tempted to forget this, right? He had to remind himself of this, even in the space of a few verses, right? Notice verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 1 is a declaration of confident trust. But notice verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Verse 5 is an exhortation. An exhortation for his soul to wait in silence. Right? What he declared in verse 1, For God alone, my soul, waits in silence. He exhorts himself to in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. What happened between verse 1 and verse 5? Well, he thought of the wicked in verses 3 and 4. Perhaps he thought of his thoughts of the wicked and his thoughts of his troubles and his thoughts of his trials began to shake his trust in God. Isn't that the way it works, right? We we begin to meditate on our troubles, whatever seems to be against us in the moment, and our troubles begin to loom largest in our life. We begin to worry and we begin to fear. We need to come back and remind ourselves, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Don't forget about God. Don't forget about your Savior. And yet, when David reminds himself, his faith actually seems to strengthen. Verse 2 ends, I shall not be greatly shaken. Meaning, though I am shaken, it won't be much. Verse 6 ends, I shall not be shaken. Period. Full stop. By exhorting himself, David strengthens his own faith. I shall not be shaken. God is in control here. God is my rock. God is my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And so when the world seems large, how do you stand firm in faith? How do you wait in faith? Well, we preach the gospel to one another. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of God, our rock, our salvation, our fortress, our mighty rock, and our refuge. We remind ourselves of His power and His mercy. And, of course, there's no better way to do that than to remind ourselves of Jesus. As we wait, we follow the path of Jesus. Jesus waited. He waited through. He waited through life. He waited through suffering. He waited through betrayal. He waited through accusations. He waited through a rigged trial. He waited through the crucifixion. He waited through the silence of the grave. Jesus also waited for He waited through death for resurrection. He waited through condemnation by Pilate for vindication by the Father. He waited through the experience of hell for his ascension into heaven. He waited through rejection by his own people for acceptance and glorification. Now through the gospel, as the gospel goes forth and on the last day, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus didn't depend on worldly measures to make this happen, right? The devil tempted him to that end. He wanted Jesus to bow to him and receive all the kingdoms of the earth in one simple act. But Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't have to wait through, the devil said. You don't have to go through all this. You can have it right now. I'll give it to you. But Jesus refused to avoid the cross. He waited through the cross for the crown. He obeyed his Father completely. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? He waited on his Father in faith and in prayer and even in the silence of death itself. And he did that not only to be saved from death by the Father in his resurrection, but also to procure salvation for us. This is ultimately why we can wait. Right. Jesus waited through, for, on, and in for us. And the Father was faithful. He came through. He kept his promises. So now we can wait knowing that as we trust in Christ, the Father will come through for us as well. And so now we wait, right? Not not demanding our kingdom come, but waiting on his. Waiting through trials and difficulties and unmet longings and unfulfilled promises. Waiting through as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. Waiting through what feels like death day after day. But we're also waiting for, waiting for the resurrection when we will rise as Jesus rose, when all things will be made new, when we will receive new bodies and God will complete his work in us. We're waiting on, waiting on God to fulfill not not our every whim and wish, but his promises given in Christ. And we wait in silence and prayer and faith, knowing that God will fulfill what he has said he will do. Now, I don't know what you're going through, what you went through this week. I don't know all of your trials and your sufferings and your enemies, but I do know that our Father raised Jesus from the dead. And he will care for all who trust in him now and raise them up with him on the last day. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would use your word to convince us that you are our refuge. Teach us to turn to you and trust in you and rest in you and to know whatever we are going through, we can wait through it for whatever it is that you have for us as we wait on you in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.